Um, I always find it an honor and a privilege to open up God's Word and to share it with you. Um, like Pastor Steve said, we are starting off a new series called Better Together. Uh, before we go, I just want to practice a little bit. When I say better, I want everyone to say together at the same time. Like better together. together. Okay, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Uh, so there's a couple things, just as I was thinking about what are things better together. There's some things that are obviously better together, like peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, that's good. Um, cookies and cream. Okay, yeah, cookies and milk is what I was going for. Chips and dip. Yeah, salsa is what I got. Um, because you can eat dip with anything, but you can't eat salsa without chips, right? Um, campfire and s'mores, popcorn and movies. This one, um, it's different. Uh, cold watermelon on a hot summer afternoon. Like, that's better than a cup of water. Pineapple and pizza. Anybody? That's, uh, this supposed to be a message on unity. That causes division. Um, <laughs> A youth pastor and Nerf guns, like, come on, those just go together. Uh, So as you guys open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, this series is really kind of birthed out of uh, the motto for, like, the symbols of God of Oklahoma as a whole. Our district pastor, Daryl Wooten, he, uh, this is our motto that he drove into us a couple years ago of the mission and vision he has for us, that be better together. I mean, that's why I get to wear a t-shirt today, right? Like, I, I timed it perfectly for this. Uh, but better together. It's, the main idea is that churches work better together. Church staffs work better together. Congregations, we all work better together. So we're going to go through Ephesians and see what that means for us, for Creed Assembly today. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, he starts off and he says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. So we're going to stop right there because it starts off with a therefore, so we need to go back and see what it's there for. Uh, I like playing on words like that. Uh, but basically, this is the second half of Ephesians, um, chapters 1 and 3, and then 4, 5, and 6, separating two things. The therefore is saying that everything I'm about to say and, and tell you to do should be based off everything I just taught you in verses 1 through 3. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is laying a foundation of identity-forming truths of who they are in Christ. And Paul, he's saying that all in Christ, all who, cho- who call on him are chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And Paul, this is saying for any person, despite background, despite anything that calls on Jesus, they're not chosen to be in him before the foundation of the world. All are redeemed. All are forgiven. We all, no matter who we are, we all receive the same grace that is richly poured out on us. We have the same inheritance. We receive the same salvation. We receive the same seal of the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, all are seated with Christ at the right hand of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, Paul is taking these high-level theological truths and he's applying them to our personal lives and to our church relationships. He said, because of these, we have all been brought near to Christ by the blood of Christ. And he says, like, they, the the Jews and the Gentiles, the two main divisions and groups that are in the church, the Jews thought they were better, the the Gentiles thought they were better. But he said, the Jews and the Gentiles are all coming together. Because of Jesus, you're now sharing the same salvation, and now you're becoming one body. You can have peace with each other because Jesus paid for your peace with God with his blood. They are now the new covenant temple that God fills with his presence and his spirit. 
And then we know in Ephesians chapter 2 that they have, all, they have both been made alive in Christ, and they now get to join with them in his resurrection and exaltation. And they have been saved and redeemed from every evil. So Paul, he's saying in those first three chapters that in Christ, all people now have equal access to God. And now because of these identity-forming truths, because of we now understand who we are in Christ, Paul now appeals to them about changing their behavior in the pattern of their lives. And that's, I, like, you can see that in most of the epistles that Paul writes. The first half is, this is what's true. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what it means to live in the kingdom. And then in the last half, it says, okay, now this is what, what I want you to do because of it. Because you are saved, because you're in Christ, this is how someone who lives in the kingdom of God lives and, and works. And that's what Ephesians 4 is starting off with. And Paul's thought, especially in Ephesians, a changed life comes before good behavior. It's as my favorite professor from ORU, Dr. Shelton, he used to always teach us that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. And those are just two Latin words. It basically means right belief always leads to right behavior. Like you can't get those out of order. Like you don't get right behavior, and then you start believing the right things. You believe the right things of who you are in Christ and, and what's happening inside of you, and that leads to a transformation that leads to a changed life. The new identity in Christ produces good works in a changed life, but that also means that is what is expected. Good works and a changed life is what is expected from a follower of Jesus. And anything different, anything less than a life that is living for the glory of God and is changed shows that you truly have not taken a hold of the identity-changing and forming truths of the first three chapters. So the main theme that we see going in Ephesians 4 is living worthy is directly related to how you treat others. That's what Paul is going to get in. It's like we are not on an island. This is not just for ourselves, but you're saved for the body. And so if that's true, if it's true that we need to live worthy of the calling received, then the questions that we should ask ourselves at this point are, how then should we treat others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ? And then how should every thought, every conversation, and every interaction uh, with others go down? And Paul, he answers that. So verse 1, he says, live worthy of the calling that you have received. And then verse 2, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. God's calling is not to a private relationship with Him, but to a life in community with other believers. Because we are better together. There we go. Some of you guys got it. Better together. Christianity was never meant to be a personal matter. Like whenever this is something that we say a lot because there's a lot of truth in it. But the phrase, accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that's not in the Scripture word for word. Instead, every time it refers to salvation or the kingdom of God or, or to Jesus, it's always in the plural. It's always our Lord and our Savior. And then Paul, when he's writing to the churches, he uses, the, the when he's talking about you need to do this, you need to do that, it's always in the plural as well. It's like you all need to do this. It's always in the plural. That means that Christianity is not a private relationship, but it's a communal relationship. To have a relationship with God and God alone by yourself and not with other believers 
is to miss the calling of God, which is to live worthy of the calling, because we are better. There we go. And so because of that truth, it is essential for Christians to then display the kind of character qualities that enhance a life of being better together. Because we can say we're better together all we want, but unless we live a life that makes that possible, it's never going to work. And so, Paul, that's why he says, with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility, we're just going to do those three, talk about them real quick. Humility is a Christ-like character. And so, in order to imitate Christ, in order to have our lives identify with him, humility needs to be at the top of our list. One of the best definitions I I love to explain humility as, it's not thinking less of yourself. We get that wrong a lot. Humility, it means I just need to think the worst about myself. Like, I'm never going to be worthy. I'm never going to measure up. I'm the worst. Everyone's better. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's just getting you out of your own mind. It's as Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Think of others as better than yourselves. Just think of others more. Humility is just thinking less of yourself. Whether that's positive or good, we're others-focused. We're we're servant-hearted. Because, And that's important because we know that where there's pride or arrogance, there's no room for growth in a relationship. That's true for any relationship. Your spouse, your best friends, your parents, where someone is lifting and exalting themselves, everyone else automatically sees that. And they don't want anything to do with that. Humility makes relationships thrive. The next one is gentleness. Gentleness is closely related with humility. And a lot of your Bible translations were translated as meek. But gentleness and meekness has nothing to do with weakness. Again, gentleness was a Christ-like character. Jesus was gentle. But that that does not mean Jesus was weak. We see in the Scriptures that Jesus is the most powerful person in the universe. All things were created by and through Jesus. He has all authority, all control, but yet he is described as gentle and lowly. He's humble. The best definition I know of gentleness is power under control. Like think about a workhorse. Like you can have a huge, powerful horse that um, that is powerful, that can move a lot of things, but at the same time you can also call that horse gentle. It's power under control. And then patience. Anger is something that can cause relationships to go sideways pretty quick. Where there is constant anger or rage, it is impossible to have a thriving relationship. Relationships just don't go together where there's also anger. And so the antidote for anger is patience. And the word that Paul uses for, for patience in the, uh, for the Greek actually has the word anger in it, but it's a compound word built on the word for anger and rage, but also has a prefix in front of it, meaning slow or long time. So patience in the literal translation means slow to anger, to take a long time to become angry. So to be patient is to be slow to anger. God is repeatedly called slow to anger. He's, he's quick to listen. He's slow to anger. Jesus is always called patient. His, his life and characteristics is patient. And these three Christ-like characteristics of humility and gentleness and patience, they are a key for any relationship to thrive, and they are the only way to bear with one another in love. And now all these things, when we accept Jesus and we allow him to come and transform, all these things start to happen naturally inside of us, or naturally is not the way, it's supernaturally inside of us. They are being transformed and happening inside of us, but at the same time, it takes effort on our part. Paul, he says in 
verse 3, keeping every effort with the unity of the Spirit. We bear with one another in love, but it takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes time. And this is why it's so important. It's because Christianity was never meant to be a personal relationship by ourselves. It's a communal relationship. We're not on our own. We're not meant to be on an island. Instead, Paul says that we are all supposed to be one. That's what he says in verses 4 through 6. He says <clears throat> excuse me, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. That word one is repeated seven times. And whenever you see that word one in the context of unity and and Christian relationships, that should automatically make you remember the prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he was arrested in John chapter 17. He prayed earnestly that his followers would become one. Oneness and unity and being better together were high priorities on Jesus' agenda, especially the night before he died. And that shows how important this was to him. And Paul, he's saying that there is one body. There's one church. It's the body of Christ. It's not just us. It's not just your small group, the Quita Assembly. It's not just the assemblies of God, but there is one body across the whole world. Everyone who calls in the name of Jesus is now one body. And that's because we are filled with and empowered by one spirit. We all have one hope. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is to all and above all, through all and in all, as Paul would say. So Christians across denominations and across the globe, anyone who's calling on the name of Jesus, you have way more in common with that person than you have differences. Think about the churches in our own city. There's um, Baptist churches or Pentecostal holiness churches or there's Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches. It doesn't matter what the exact denomination is, but you have way more in common with somebody who calls on the name of Jesus than you have differences. It also doesn't matter political affiliations. It doesn't matter what city they're in, if they're in Portland or New York or across the world in London or Paris. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, you have way more in common with that person than you have differences. And it doesn't matter background. It doesn't matter political affiliations. It doesn't matter about weird beliefs about certain interpretations of the Bible because sometimes it's hard to get everything exactly right. That doesn't matter. God still says that we are expected to bear with one another in love and then we're able to because we have the most important things in common. You have way more in common with different believers, especially those who have different backgrounds and political affiliations than you have differences. And says because of that, we are expected to bear with one another in love. It reminds me of my old pastor at Carbonell, who just recently retired, Pastor Phil Taylor. He used to always say, and it's something I remembered I was writing this, he says, keep the, or the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. In the context of that, he's saying, like, don't get <clears throat> distracted by weird interpretations and weird things in the Bible, like what does this mean? Is, are there symbolisms over here? Is, is, what does this prophecy mean? When is this going to be fulfilled? It says, the things that are plain, the things that are explicit, those are the main things that we should all take away and all agree on. And the main things that we all agree on are also the plain things. 
And what that means in church unity is don't get distracted by trivial matters that you think are important. And especially, don't ever let those small things keep you from having unity in the Spirit. Instead, focus on the main things. And so whenever you come in a conflict or you find somebody that you feel like you might have differences with, especially like political differences or different interpretations, how do we keep unity in that? Focus on the main things. Focus on the church. Live in the Spirit. Focus on the same hope of living in the kingdom of God. Talk about Jesus and share how good he's been in your life. Talk about your faith. Share your baptism experience. Pray with and for one another to the same Father who hears their prayers just as much as he hears your prayers and focus on that. Keep the, main, the plain things the main things. That's the secret sauce to unity. That's how unity happens in, the, in the, the body of Christ. We focus on the main things because we're better together. And if we're better together, then that means we're going to accomplish more together. But the opposite is also true, that if we're not together, we're not better. And the enemy would love nothing more than to distract us and to divide us and make sure that we're not being unified. Because if we're unified, nothing can stop us. But if we're not then we're just going in different directions, and that's never going to take us anywhere. So we're going to transition. God calls us to the same calling, to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to bear with each other in love, and to keep the unity. And that is all possible because we are one in Christ. But at the same time, God also gives us different gifts in the church to serve the church in unique ways. So Paul is saying that you are one. You share in the main things. But at the same time, you are each uniquely gifted to serve the church in different roles and different responsibilities. So if you're following along in the Bible, turn with me to verse 11. Uh, we're going to come back to verses 7 to 10 in the end. But verses 11 through 16, uh, it's actually all one sentence in the Greek. Uh, it's a lot of words, just a run-on sentence. So Paul definitely would not have passed ninth grade English with this kind of grammar. Uh, but that's just a... a a style in Greek on how to make everything flow together to make sure that he knows that this is all one topic. This all flows together. So nothing should be cherry-picked out of this teaching. So verse 11 says, And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But by speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual parts. So why did God give us, why did God give the church different leaders? As Paul would say, prophets and apostles and evangelists, pastors and teachers. Like, have you ever thought about that before? Like, you've been probably coming to church your whole life or maybe just for a few years or a few months. Have you ever thought, like, why does God give the church leaders, why is it not just more, more, like, more widespread? Why is there leaders who get to speak every week? Why does it seem like there's more people in charge? Why does God give us leaders? Most people think, and 
probably not you guys, but especially as the smaller the church gets, that it's the pastors or the churches, the church staff's job to do everything for the church, for the body. Like it's the pastor's job to go to all the hospitals and to pray for all the things and to fill in the blank. But why does Paul say God gives us spiritual leaders? It's to equip the saints. It's to equip you for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith. Christ gives gifted leadership to the church not to do the ministry for all the various members of the body while the members passively sit back and get fed, but it's to prepare each one of them to actively serve in the way that Jesus has gifted them. That's why Paul says there's leaders. It's to equip the, the body to do the ministry. Pastors are never meant to be a one-man show up on stage, up here performing. But at the same time, you also shouldn't sit back and watch and expect pastors to do all the ministry because that's not healthy. That's not biblical. But the church and the body and the saints should actively be involved in the ministry of the church, extending to God's kingdom in all of your world. That's the only way this works. That's the only way that this is better is if we're all together together. You serve in the exact spots that God has gifted you in, and then you take your service, you take the ministry that you feel a part of, and then you also go and extend God's kingdom into your world, your family, your community, your workplace. That's how the kingdom of God grows. I tell that to my students all the time. Like, invite your students to church. Share the gospel with people. Like, I am one pastor. I can't go and share the gospel to all your friends at all your different schools. Instead, you should do that. Like, I can't. You're not, I'm not going to have the same relationship with all the friends that you're going to have, that all the people you can come in contact with, but God has gifted you with different gifts, and he's placed people along your path. You need to bring them to you. I can't do that for every single one of you. And that's just as much on church leadership as it is on the church. Like, the church leadership should never want to take and hoard all the ministry, but we need to work on actively equipping the body and delegating the ministry to the body because we are better together. And the goal, Paul says, is unity and knowledge of Christ and maturity. It's that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. The right beliefs lead to right behavior. And that's more important than ever because the pastor and teacher's job is to preach and to teach right doctrine, right beliefs, so that the church and the saints can be unified with other believers on what the main things are and growing more into the image of Christ And then doing kingdom work wherever you go from there, knowing who Jesus is and where your role is in the kingdom, and then going out and doing the kingdom work. That's why it's important to have good and godly leaders that know the Bible through and through and who can communicate that, because we live in a world that is filled with false ideas that are keeping us from filling God's calling in our lives, because we have a very real enemy that wants to distract and to disunify us, to keep us from extending God's kingdom. Paul lays it out in verses 12 through 15. We already read it, but I think it's important to go back and read it again. In verse 12, it says, Paul gave us, or God gave us all these leaders. And in verse 12, it says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ, until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. 
Then we'll no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind or teaching or by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. You guys know this. We say this all the time. But the end goal of being a Christian is not just to be saved. That shouldn't be your, your goal. Like, I just want to make sure I'm good enough to get in whenever I die. Like, that's never the goal. It's like, what's, what's the line? What do I need to do? Do I need to raise a hand? What prayer do I need to pray? What do I need to do to get in? The goal is never just to be saved or to get into heaven. The goal is to always become more like Jesus. It's that transforming. It's that sanctification of every day you're growing. You're becoming more like him. Paul, he says, it's to grow in the maturity by a stature measured by Christ's fullness. And he says, it's to grow in every way into him who is the head, which is Christ. The end goal is to become more like Jesus and then to do what he did. And we become more like Jesus by growing in our faith and knowledge of of Jesus. But that first takes somebody speaking the truth in love, even though sometimes the truth hurts. You don't come to a moment of responding to Jesus by, by feeling good about the message or feeling good about yourself. You never come to repent or confess your sins if you feel good or comfortable in your sins. It takes someone speaking the truth and saying, you're dead in those sins. Without Jesus, you're being deformed from the image of God. Without Jesus, you are dead. You're not alive. What you think you're finding fulfillment and you're not finding fulfillment and you need to humble yourself and come to a Savior. That doesn't happen unless someone's speaking the truth in love to you. But at the same time, it also takes you, the body, speaking the truth and love into each other and then receiving the truth and love. It takes us pointing things out and saying, hey, you say you believe this, I say I believe this, but something in your life isn't measuring up with what we both say we believe, and here's where that is. And, and we need to get online with that. It's speaking the truth, but it's important because you're doing it in love. You're doing it because you want them to become more like Jesus in the end. But that's hard because then there's the receiving side. We need to be better at receiving truth in love, knowing that the person doing that is doing it out of the best interest so that we can become more like Jesus. We can be better together and more effective for the kingdom of God. And it's more important today than ever than to believe the truth and to speak the truth because that is how we defend against the attacks of the enemy. The devil can only attack by lies and deceits. Jesus and the New Testament writers, they work off this core conviction that deception, which is what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 4, deception is tied to temptation and temptation to slavery to sin. And then it's the truth that will set you free. This is Jesus' main teaching in John chapter 6, that when when you sin, you're a slave to sin, but it's the truth that will set you free. And as Jesus followers, as Christ followers, who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, the devil can't make us do anything. We have to choose it. And this is where it gets kind of hard to hear because a lot of times we think, oh, why did, why'd you do that? Why, why, why'd you sin? Why'd you fall in the temptation? Oh, the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything. He doesn't come in and possess you to go and do things. There's, there's demonic attacks, there's oppression, that's all different, but... The way he gets you to do things is to believe a lie. It's through deceit. It's through trickery. When we sin, we do it because we choose to. 
when we lie or we cheat or we steal or we let our own emotions get the best of us or we choose not to be humble, we choose not to be gentle, we choose not to be patient, whenever we feed our flesh, it's because we made a choice. It's a choice we made. And to get us to choose evil, our enemy, he has to trick us to walk down a path other than the one that Jesus laid down for us and said, this other path, it's going to lead you to the happiness or the security or the fulfillment that you're looking for. Like, don't go down the Jesus way. That's not going to lead you to what you're looking for. Instead, hey, look over here. Look at this thing. It's so much easier. Like, you, you'll, you'll get to avoid conflict if you just tell this white lie. You'll get to avoid the, the discomfort of following Jesus if you just go and do whatever you want. The devil, he gets us to fall in temptation by getting us to believe that the way other than Jesus is the way that we need to go. And his primary way of doing us through illusion or lies or deceit. So one way to think about temptation is to see all temptation as an appeal to believe a lie or to believe an illusion about what reality actually is. And so we need to know, like, what's, what is truth? What is reality? The best definition of truth I come across is Truth is reality or that which corresponds with reality. So truth is basically what you can rely on as real. Think about where you're sitting right now. The air you're breathing, that's, that's reality. That's real. The chair you're sitting on, you can feel it. It's, it's safe, secure. That's reality. But Jesus is reality. When we call something a lie, we mean that it doesn't respond to reality. Whenever we fall into a slavery to sin, it leads to deformation from, the, from being a, an image of Christ. And whenever we are allowing ourselves to be blown away by every wind of teaching or deceit, that leads to a life that is not unified or mature and not measured up to the fullness of Christ. So then we ask again, like, what is reality? How do I believe the truth? How do I believe reality and not fall for the deceit and lies and, and the being blown around by the winds and waves of teaching? Reality, it's the truth of the scripture. Reality is the gospel. It's the incoming kingdom of God. The truth is that Jesus, the Son of God, he died for you 2,000 years ago on a cross, and he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. He's exalted. He's sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for you right now. And because of that truth alone, we can all become, come near to God, and we can come to God, and we can confess our sins and confess our mistakes, and we can repent, and we can turn from them and turn to God, and he will forgive us. The truth is, is that in our sins we are dead, but in God we are alive, and that is the truth. And Paul, he ties the truth of Scripture and the truth of what Jesus did for us, he ties it back to our calling and gifts. There's that, that passage that we skip, verses 10, 7 through 10, because at first reading, it doesn't really seem like it makes sense. It doesn't really seem like it fits in there. Like Paul, he's like really stretching to put that in there to make something make sense. Because the first six verses, it's talking about you are all called. You are all one. Bear with one another in love. For there's one body, one faith. And then the next part, he says, you are all one, but you have different gifts. Let's serve the church differently, growing in him. But then there's seven through 10. Um, verse seven, it says, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and gave gifts to his people. 
But what does he ascended mean except he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens to fill all things. So here, Paul, he's quoting from Psalm 68. In what, Psalm 68 is a famous psalm of David, which is referring to God as a divine warrior. And he's saying, like, God is the one who has great victory over his enemies. And he, he ascends to the mountain, and he is exalted, and he is, he is high. And but why, why is Paul putting it right here? Like, he, he pauses to, to exalt how high God is. So right in the middle of, God, of Paul talking about unity and oneness and equipping and ministry and being better together, Paul, he goes off and he shows us how powerful and mighty God is. But it's because he's showing us how it is possible for God to call us and to equip us with gifts. Paul, he's trying to get us to understand just a little glimpse that the God we serve is completely powerful and no one stands a chance against him. So there's two things there. God is completely powerful, powerful enough to save you and to deliver you and to set you free when you call on him. And that's good news because he's also powerful enough to call you and to equip you and to give you a gift to serve his body. And he's powerful enough to make it to where if we have differences, we can get past the differences because we share in the main things. And so we can speak the truth and loving each other and we can go off and be better together. God is all powerful to make all these things possible. He has all powerful, all power necessary to call you to equip you, and to empower you to change the world with his life-changing message of the kingdom of God. And then Paul, he makes it explicitly clear that he's referring to Jesus here. He's quoting Psalm 68, but he's saying that Jesus is that divine warrior. When Jesus ascended on high, he took the captives captive, and then he gave gifts to his people. Because he took the captives captive, he can give gifts to his people. And I, I'm not going to lie, whenever I first read this, I had to do a lot of studying to figure out, like, what is this meaning? And the first time I ever preached on this, I think I actually preached on it wrong. I think I took it as he took the captors captive, which is true too. But that's not what it's saying here. It says he took the captives captive. He took with him, or he enslaved, those who were enslaved to sin, or fear, or to shame. He said, whenever you are a sl- you were a slave to sin, we know that's what Jesus says, when you sin, you are a slave to sin. There's no if in or buts about that. But he's saying, now you are a slave to Christ. Whenever we humble ourselves and we submit under his lordship, we are now slaves of Christ. And a lot of us, we don't like to hear that language, but that's exactly the language the Bible uses. Paul, he starts off most of his letters. He says, Paul writing this, an apostle, a slave of Christ. A lot of our translations, we use servant, uh, but it's the same word. It's doulos. It means to be a slave. We are enslaved. He, he took the captives. He enslaved those who were enslaved to sin, and now they're no longer a slave to sin. Instead, we can be a slave to Jesus. That's the only way we find freedom from the life we don't want. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Jesus. There's no middle ground. But true freedom is found in being a slave to Jesus. It says you were a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to to Christ. When you are a slave to Jesus, you no longer have to be a slave to fear. 
You're no longer a slave to depression. You're no longer a slave to anxiety. You're no longer a slave to lies or ideas about reality. Now, all those things still happen. We still get attacks. I'm not making light of any of those things, but the Bible is clear. You don't have to be a slave to those anymore. Now, before Jesus, you didn't have a choice. That was just the natural mode of operation on how you just live. But now in Jesus, you don't have to go back to that. You don't have to be a slave. In Jesus and Jesus alone, there is freedom to be who God created you to be. And who did God create you to be? He created you to be like Jesus. We see in the first three chapters of Genesis, it always goes back to creation. We're image bearers of God. Sin deforms us from that. But in Christ, he's reforming that image bearerness inside of us. God created you to live in his kingdom. He created you to submit under his lordship, to, for him to be the true king and master of our lives and to bear with one another in love with all humility and gentleness and patience. God created you to be a part of a body, not to be isolated, not to be alone, but to be a part of a, a, a body that is bigger than yourself, fitted and knitted together. You're not saved for yourself, but for the body. We are better together. And the first step to live that out, if we're not already a part of the kingdom or a part of the body or accepted Jesus, the first step to live that out is to accept Jesus' call. He says, anyone who wants to follow me, take up your cross and die to yourself. Take up your cross, humble yourself under me and submit to me as king and I will offer you a new way of life. Quoting from Psalm 68, Paul, he did the next verse right after it. I love it. It says, God is a God of salvation. An escape from death belongs to the Lord, my Lord. With every head bowed and every eye closed. If you've never responded to Jesus, never made the decision to make him the Lord and Savior of your life, to repent of your sins, of your wrongdoings, and come to him and receive his forgiveness, but you want to. You want to become a part of the family. You want to become a part of the body that he has created. You want to be part of something bigger than yourself. If you've never made that decision, but you want to this morning, I just want you to raise your hand so that we can pray with you. We're not going to make you come up to the front or embarrass yourself. And if you're online, if that's a decision you want to make, if you can just comment below, we'll pray for you godly. For those of you who might be saying this for the first time, just pray this after me. Say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of my unrighteousness. Make me new. Make me to be just like you. In Jesus' name, amen. That's not a magic prayer. The words, the order doesn't matter, but it's about the belief in your heart and how you want to submit to Jesus. Um, and all heaven is rejoicing for those who say that and those who accept Jesus. And now I couldn't think of a, a better ending and a better way to end a, of a message about unity than taking communion. Uh, which we do this every month anyways, but it just falls perfectly today. So I'm going to ask Pastor Steve to come up and lead us in communion.